Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Hello and welcome your host to is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. I'm Sultan Ghaznawi, your host. Today we will be talking about how to make sure a merger deal ends up amicably for both parties once the agreements have been signed and the integration of the two firms starts. To talk about that, today I have invited Paul Doherty on this episode. He's a great friend of the podcast and an amazing gentleman full of experience and knowledge. During his career, Paul has set up two language service companies, the Language Technology Center, which became a $25 million business merged into Xerox Language Services, and Multilingual Technology Limited, which he sold to Berlitz during the dot-com era. Since then, Paul has been Managing Director of UK, German, Polish, and Slovakian companies for Berlitz, Bound, and Linebridge. He has led European sales for Linebridge and SDL and has worked as a strategic consultant to Moravia. Paul is Director of Strategy Management Consultants Limited, helping companies to implement transformative change. Some of the transformative change Paul has been in involved in our company mergers and acquisitions, in particular how to make the merger work. Why is it that most mergers fail to deliver their promised value? What is the secret to successful mergers? That is the subject of today's podcast. Welcome back to the Translation Company Talk, Paul. Uh, how have you been? I've been, um, I've been fine. I've been busy um, uh, working on um, marketing my services. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I've heard that you have uh, started to um, focus on a specific specialization these days, and I'm very excited to hear that, which is also the subject of our conversation today. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's um, one of the uh, areas of specialism that I've been involved in in the past, um, by, more by accident than design, has been mergers and acquisitions. And I've been, it's always, always been curious at why the majority of mergers fail to deliver the promised value. And having been involved in so many, I've seen it firsthand how they can go wrong and um, and uh, also how they can go very right. Right. So, okay. I mean, in, in, in terms of, um, you know, my experience with mergers and acquisitions, um, uh, M&A activity comes in and out of fashion. You know, but uh, it's definitely back in fashion now. So of course, yeah. It's actually, yeah, so it's a, it's a good time to remind myself of how many mergers I've been through. I sold my own company, MTL, to Berlitz, and then Berlitz was acquired by Bound, and Bound was bought by Lionbridge. When I started working for SDL, there were five business divisions. Uh, each division was either an acquired company or an amalgamation of acquired companies. And I was involved in the merger of two of those SDL business units, language services and language technology. And in addition to that, all my customers in the last two years have either been acquired or have acquired companies. So if I was going to summarize all that experience in one sentence, I would say I've seen mergers done well and I've seen them done badly. So let's dive right into... Um... The, the, the specific area we're focusing today, the subject of our discussion today, which is success and post-mergers. Uh, once the deal has been done, um, how do you maintain a happy relationship? Tell me, Paul, what has your experience been with M&A's post-agreement? 
Well, that's just the ones I've just mentioned there. So post-agreement, post um, I was um, MTL in Berlitz. I was part of the team that made that work. Um, Berlitz were then acquired by Bowen, and uh, I was part of the team uh, involved in merging those um, two companies. Bowen was acquired by Linebridge. I was a, a MD. Uh, in, uh, in the UK and then I moved to Germany and I was involved in all the merger activities there and likewise SDL and then as a consultant I've been working with recently with um, some companies who have either been acquired or have acquired other companies. Great, let's make the, the business case for, uh, for our conversation. So, uh, what have you noticed happen post mergers? What, what, where do things go wrong? Yeah, for for most company mergers, things go wrong before the contract is signed. Um, the company acquisitions, by their very nature, are secretive. There's only a, a few people involved in the decision to acquire another company, and they're sworn to secrecy. So, this right. core team of internal executives and external advisors, they're assembled to look at suitable candidate companies and they do due diligence on the target company, they audit their accounts, they look at their liabilities, customer contracts, uh, other legally binding agreements are checked by legal teams and a business case is put together for buying the target company. So the business case focuses almost exclusively on things like revenue growth, profit predictions, cost saving opportunities. Uh, any talk about customers' concerns, will the deal give us a bigger share of the customer spend? Will this deal give us a bigger share of, say, the high-tech sector or life sciences sector? Will the deal get us into a new industry sector or give us a presence in a new geographical location? But very little, if, if any, thought is given to, well, what does this deal mean for our customers? What benefit does this offer our customers? Why should our, our customers care? And even less thought is given to how will we make the merger work? What will the new organization look like? Apart from the easy stuff like we don't need two CEOs, uh, little thought is given to how to keep key customers and employees, how to communicate the news to the joint companies, what difficulties might be encountered in the merger, and uh, what can we do right now to be ready to merge the companies on day one after the deal is done. So consider considerations of customer positioning and how the merger will work are either seen as boring detail or roadmap that can be worked out after the acquisition. And the result is that 50% of mergers not only fail to deliver the promised value, but actually deliver negative value. That means the combined revenues, profits and market share um, of the companies shrink in the first year after the deal is done. For 35% of mergers, they deliver a minimal value and only 15% deliver the promised value. What seem to be um, the causes of these failures? Is it not having the right people? Is it having everything closed off to a small group of people, as you just mentioned? Or is it basically not being prepared for things and, and haven't thought out uh, what the implications of your decisions are? Well, uh, there's a list which I call the seven deadly sins of company mergers. And um, if you've got the time, I can take you through that Please. little list. 
Right, so the the deadly sin number one is no clear executive vision. So by that I mean it should be why are you buying this company, and what does that mean for your customers? What does it mean for your employees? Why is it good news for customers and employees? So that lack of clear executive vision is the first reason, and deadly sin number two. Failure to create and communicate a real sense of urgency. So speed is essential to the success of a merger. Um, you've basically got six months to make a merger work. But most execs say things like, oh, carry on as you were. You know, there's no rush. We want to take our time and make sure we get it right. But when you, dis- when you say that, you destroy any sense of urgency and you've lost value right there. And in surveys I've read almost all executives who were asked what they would do differently if they had to do the merger all over again they said they would do the merger more quickly so uh, deadly sin number three is not identifying the 20% of actions which are going to deliver 80% of the future value so as bad as a failure to properly plan for a merger is the other extreme of producing a mind-numbing, soul-destroying list of tasks to do because list-driven mergers are prolonged mergers and delay is the enemy of success. Time's against. You've only got about six months. So you have to prioritise what has to be done. You have to identify the drivers of value and prioritise a short list of initiatives which will deliver the most value in the shortest available time. And then you have to allocate resources to deliver those initiatives. The deadly sin number four, not engaging the whole organization in the process. Um, executive teams are the ones that are involved in the acquisition, but post-acquisition, they have to have the honesty and humility to the, that they don't have all the answers. They need to go out to the organization and ask for help in making the merger a success, get them engaged. Because it's all the people out there who are going to make the merger a success, not the executive team sitting in their their boardroom. Deadly sin number five, infrequent and ineffective communications. So good communication means no secrets, no surprises, no hype and no empty promises. Being honest. Yeah, being honest. Absolutely. But what you find is most communication post-acquisition is content-free drivel. Um, it's 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 just marketing speak, but it's not actually talking. It it says a lot without saying anything. But in in the absence of proper company communication, the communication doesn't disappear. It just goes underground. People talk to each other, and in those conversations, they always imagine the worst, and the rumor mill distracts them from doing their their job. So. Sin number six, absence of a dedicated and fully resourced implementation team. Most executives, once the deal is done, the contract signed, the champagne's popped, they expect the merger to happen by magic. We've shown you the vision presentation, or we've had a booze up in New York, so go back to your people and make this happen. But, you know, that's not the way successful mergers work. Successful mergers, and that means quick mergers, they require your A-team, your best people to make it happen. And they need to be allocated time, 
maybe 50% of their time for six to nine months to make it happen. Uh, I, I was told when Baumbach were lits, Paul, 50% of your time for the next six to nine months is going to be helping to make this a success. So I, that's the kind of message you have to give. You have to allocate people the time to do it, not expect them to fit it in on top of their day job. And the last, the seventh thing is failure to monitor and evaluate the outcome. What's working? What's not working? What's going according to plan? What isn't going according to plan? What are we going to focus on this quarter? And that information, that is what should go into your weekly communication to the company. That's what makes the communication meaningful to the company and say, hey, this is important. This is what we're doing. This is what's working. Keeps everyone engaged. Seven deadly sins. Very well said, Paul. Thank you so much. That makes a lot of things very clear. At the end of um, the day, every entrepreneur uh, wants to be successful. A proper exit strategy must be created and evaluated against potential deals. What gives people the wrong expectation, uh, which uh, it, in some cases end up in, in failures like we just discussed? Well, so what gives people the wrong expectation? Um, uh, you could ask, why Why does the buyer buy? So um, the buyer is attracted by the seductive lure of a competitive advantage or instant growth, uh, instant increased market share. And all that good news tends to make the buyer believe their own hype about the wisdom of the deal. They've sold it to themselves. CEO or owner will sell it to themselves, sell it to their executive team. And that encourages everyone to downplay or suppress potential downsides of the merger. The focus is on all the upside, what could go wrong. Um, so for the seller, where it goes wrong is maybe the expectation that things will carry on pretty much as before for their teams and their customers, but with the additional benefit of being part of a larger company. But they don't think so much about, you know, um, when you merge, when you sell your company, things don't stay the same. Um, it's, it's in its nature that nothing's going to be the same, really. So again, all the focus is on the upsides and the downsides are downplayed. How common is it in the language industry for mergers to fail? Uh, I don't have any surveys for the language industry. Uh, I will talk a little bit about another general survey, but I don't have any for the language industry. But I can say of the many mergers that I've been part of or that I've witnessed at close hand, I would only say two have been what I consider a success. And by success, I mean, at the end of the first year, the merged companies felt like they had always been one company. Right. They retained all their key customers and employees. And the original revenue and project projections at the beginning of the merger, they were met or they were exceeded. So that's that's what I mean by successful merger. And for all the other mergers I've witnessed or been part of, uh, they've varied from uh, disappointing to breathtakingly bad. So that's the language industry. For non-language industry, there there are there are studies covering mergers in general. Lots of them you'll find them on the on the internet. But <clears throat> in the 90s, the PricewaterhouseCoopers conducted a nationwide survey of 124 recently acquired and merged companies in the USA and that's where I get the figures about they found only 50% of mergers met the objectives that drove the initial deal 
They also found that for those mergers which did meet their objectives, they often took years to be realised. And um, what's more, the most sought after objectives were often the least achieved, such as reductions in manufacturing costs, distribution costs and operating expenses. So there's no reason I know of which would lead me to believe that the localization industry merger success rate is any better than those in the PwC study. And uh, what is the, the role of the business owner or entre- entrepreneur in such a breakup? We talked about the, the, the wrong expectations that they have, but um, is there something they can do to avoid these things? Yeah. Well, if you mean the business owner, if, if you mean the, the seller. The seller. Yeah, the sellers, normally they're too focused on their personal short-term benefits. <laughs> I would say there's one thing, you know, the, the lure right, of right. instant riches. And uh, <laughs> again, believing their, their own hype. Uh, you know, they, they, there's, they're so focused on this going well that it becomes kind of group think, it must go well. What can go wrong? So I think that's um, that's the, the role of the business owner is they're not critical enough. They're too positive, if you like. Understood. And I, I'm sure the, the company acquiring or the buyer also, um, it, it, it does not wish to waste their time and, and resources. But how often are they instigated for such failures? Quite often, I think. They're the primary instigator of such failures. They're <laughs> the primary instigator of the success as well. So, I mean, uh, the, the owner, the CEO, the box starts and stops with them, you know. So I'd say the <clears throat> the, the the main errors for the, the main causes of failures is, as I've said, believing their own hype and underplaying the difficulties. Mergers are difficult, not easy. So you have to plan for the difficulties. Um, in the very nature of uh, mergers and acquisitions, you've got to sell it to the market. So they, they, they tend to then oversell, you know, all those hot forecasts, they oversell and they underdeliver. And uh, the, the last common error is failure to plan what happens once the deal is done. And, uh, you know, they say failure to plan is uh, planning to fail. Absolutely. And uh, you, you talked about the, the causes of these failures in, in, great, in great depth, actually. After the deal has closed initially, let's talk about the impact of such failures and what it means for both sides of the agreement. Right. Well, so if you take the CEO, he's the guy who's sold this to the market and now he has to go and he has to deliver. So like after the champagne's been popped and all the pats on the back have been given, the CEO, the buyer, he's faced with the cold reality of all his own hot forecasts. So the expectations have been set so high that they're incredibly hard to deliver. So almost immediately post-deal, the merge company is on the back foot as all those hot predictions fail to materialise. So the long-term vision, which was front stage before the contract was signed, that long-term vision was lost in a bout of short-term firefighting and cost-cutting. And uh, now, because there's very little good news to tell, communication becomes scarce and content-free. So this leads to employees fearing the worst. They ignore their customers because they lose focus, thinking about their own futures. 
And the result is you start to lose key customers, employees jump ship, and that creates a downward spiral of lost value. Um, and uh, for the acquiring CEO, who has, um, you know, who has bet his career on this one transaction, it can mean his job and his reputation. For the right. selling CEO, it can mean he loses the future earnout portion of his deal. So it's bad news all round. Mergers and acquisitions, or M&A, is literally it's uh, the marriage between two organizations, two companies, and a lot of people are involved in that relationship and bond. Do you think failures and problems arise because people don't take their time to know each party? No, no. I think it's because there's no proper framework, um, no proper by framework I mean no plan. So there's no proper framework for people to get to know each other under collaborative circumstances. Instead, getting to know each other becomes a series of endless internal turf wars with teams and individuals trying to justify their existence at the expense of their new colleagues. And uh, how often does that happen, Paul? It happens incredibly often. (laughs) And (laughs) almost all the time, you've got to expect that. To happen, if you expect it to happen, you you can you can deal with it. But if it's just without the plan, if it's just like the typical over to you, you've seen the vision, now go make it work. Then people are 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 so focused on what's right for them rather than what's right for the company, or even more so, what's right for the customers. That um, in the absence of that plan, you'll get endless internal tough wars it becomes very dysfunctional and very toxic let's uh, find some benchmarks for failure post mergers in, in the language industry you said that there are not many stats available the, the, i mean anecdotally we know that there are acquisitions that happen by other language companies but then there are acquisitions that take place by parties that are out from outside the industry do you think there is a difference in terms of who is acquiring? What does it mean for the post-merger success probability? Uh, so who's doing the acquiring? I think that's only important in as much as they come to the table with the expectation that mergers are hard, that they need a plan to overcome those difficulties, and that they have a determination to make it happen quickly. And that can be, that doesn't matter whether they are uh, localized if they're from the local industry or not, I would say that maybe private equity firms or or the like, they might have a lot more experience of doing mergers and acquisitions, but having experience of them doesn't mean to say they've got good experience because there are lots of uh, companies who are have multiple experience of multiple merger failures it doesn't stop because it went wrong the first time. Doesn't stop them doing it again. So, I, um, it's got to be the right experience, and that right experience can come from within the local industry. There are people in the local industry who know how to do it, um, but there are not many. We talked about the impact of such failures on both parties. What about the people working in the company that was acquired? What does it mean for them when when things go south? Well. Obviously, people working for a company which has just been acquired, they feel under threat and often with good reason. Um, so, but buyers who are focused on realizing 
the future promised value of the deal, they put great store in retaining the best people. So I'll give you an example, right? So I was the managing director of Blitz in the UK. We were acquired by Bow. And I expected as being the, the company, I was part of the Berlitz organization, we were being acquired. There was, Bowne had, a, had an MD in the UK, I expected to be sacked, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that expectation, you know, that was reinforced when before the deal was done, <laughs> two people from Bowne in the UK came into my office, well, late one Thursday night when I was the only one there and they, uh, they looked in, you know, they went into my office inside right. the, the Blitz office and they started talking about, arguing about who was going to get my office when the deal was done, right? <laughs> so, so, so I'm just watching these two guys talking, arguing about who was going to get my office. So I thought, yeah, definitely, I better be making plans for going somewhere else. But Bound was an American company. And, uh, you know, somebody from the States called me and they said, hey, Paul, we are we want to keep the best people and we believe you might be one of the best people. So you're going to have to apply for the job of managing director of Bowen in the UK. But, you know, if you're the best person for the job, you'll get the job. So instead of leaving, I applied for the job and I got the job. And that said to me, these guys are serious. They're looking, you know, they've got a plan and they've got a focus and it's not just the usual, we're, we're taking over you, we're going to get... You know, this is going to be good for us, the acquirer, but not good for you, the the company's been bought. And so that impressed me. Another thing that impressed me, they said, you know, we we want this to be feel like one company within a year, and for that you're going to have to allocate 50% of your time to making the merger work. That means you're going to have to delegate 50% of the stuff you normally do is in your MD role and focus on the plan of make, of the implementation. So um, that's um, the, the impact. It normally doesn't work that way, but it can work that way and it should work that way. I, su- I suppose I could ask the same question about the acquiring party. They have invested a lot of time and resources. What would it mean to them when their acquisition fails? Right, well, for the, the buyer CEO, it can mean his job, and I've seen that happen a couple of times. And even if it doesn't mean his job, it can mean his, he, you know, he loses his reputation instead of being kind of like the visionary. He's oh, he's the guy who bought that, that dumb, that duff company. For the employees of the acquiring company, if, if the forecasts don't go as forecast, if the results don't go as forecast, then they go into a cycle or multiple cycles of cost cutting and uh, they can lose their job as well. So just because you're you're part of the, the company that acquires another one, it's far your job is far from safe. And if those forecasts have been set unrealistically high, then it's it's even your job is even more at risk. And let's look at such uh, breakups in the context of the overall industry. What does it tell other potential buyers when a deal falls apart after a merger? Uh, there are always takers for the money of the buyer, but what about the seller? Well, for the buyer, it should say, what is it, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Um, but um, experience of human nature tells us that, you know, that lure of instant growth 
new customers, new industry sector expertise, um, a competitive advantage, all that is so strong that buyers will buy, even if they've had bad experiences in the past. So I would say, given that you're not going to change human nature, why not just say, if you've decided to buy, why not invest a little bit more to ensure that the merger is a success? Um, and for the seller, you know, the seller typically can be an owner in the local industry, often is. So they're going to sell their baby, the company they've built up. So they want to be able to look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know, I gave my ex-colleagues, my ex-customers, my company, the best start with a new and greater organization. So from a seller's point of view, they should also insist on including up front the planning and investment to ensure the merger is a success. I know there are no solid statistics available, but anecdotally or from your experience, how, how often does this happen? Well, I mean, I would just say, though, if, if you believe the, the PricewaterhouseCoopers study, you know, if that's true, then in the local industry, it will happen about 15% of the time. And if you look at my own experience of, so, um, what, nine, ten mergers, two out of ten, that's um, what, 20%. So 15% PWC, 20% anecdotally from my own experience. That's an awful lot of failed mergers. It's a lot, um, a lot of wasted time, yep. wasted money, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's also bad publicity for certain companies. Yep, indeed. Right. How come we don't hear about these failures? Uh, you just say that, you know, especially in our industry, we don't have much coverage of these failures. Most of the time, the media and industry news paint a very rosy picture of the m and landscape. Well, it depends on who you talk to or, you know, where you go for your information. Um, I know of one CEO who was complaining on internal calls five years after a particular acquisition that he didn't know why he bought the company in the first place. I know of uh, one company which got an absolute pasting in the business press for the failure of one of its acquisitions. And I know of at least two buyer CEOs who lost their jobs because the mergers they were responsible for were failures. So once again, buyer beware. So I, th- I think it, it does it does get coverage, um, but uh, I suppose it, it depends on where you look. I think um, people in the press, you know, they're looking for things to, you know, to sell. And new acquisitions it always gets press coverage, but an acquisition which is two years old and it's just been a grinding failure doesn't normally make a headline. Paul, let me ask you another question. Has there been a situation where shareholders have forced a company into a merger? Um, uh, forced the company to merge? Well, I mean, in, in, uh, in publicly traded companies, uh, the shareholders have to agree. So... Um, so if there was if there was a, a kind of hostile takeover and and the shareholders said yeah we want this then they voted for it then that would go ahead if that's what you mean. 
and other industries, as you said, there have been hostile takeovers, or in some cases, the company had been failing and the shareholders wanted better value. And um, they, they, in a way, forced the company to, to merge with someone else to be available for sale, I guess. That's what I meant. Yeah, I'm not aware of it. And I'm sure it happens. <laughs> but I'm not aware of it. And from my own experience, it was, um, they were all, all the mergers and acquisitions I've been part of, they were all, they, they, they were all negotiated. Right. And agreed. They weren't all welcome because the companies that were acquired at the time, they didn't want to be acquired. What would you say are some of the key things that both parties must pay attention to in order to avoid these challenges? Well, the quick answer is just avoid the seven deadly sins of company mergers that I listed <laughs> earlier on. What a good answer. And, and are there things specific to the language industry that people should pay attention to? Uh, that may not be common outside our industry. I think no. I, I think it's 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 pretty much the the plan. Obviously, the details of the plan. If I think about the language industry, the bits that are you know, if you're going to merge, the bits that that need looking at the most is the customer messaging. Terrible at 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 thinking. What does this mean for our customers? Why should they care? You know, are we causing a problem for our customers? Are we gen- you're generating a threat for them or, or for ourselves because of the customer reaction? I think that's one thing that's very particular to the uh, language industry. Also, the language industry is not very good at um, at getting its its house in order on its processes and. Uh, You've got lots of multiple different ways of doing things, so they're not very good at it. I always think that a merger is is um, a good opportunity to look at the whole production methodology, How, especially if you're merging two companies. They're going to be doing things differently, different ways. Well, one thing's for sure, if you look at people doing the same thing differently, they can't all be the best way of doing it. So it's a great opportunity to come up with a um, an agreed standard way of doing things and once you've standardized a a process that's when you can automate it and when you can automate a process then that's where you can realize some of the promised cost synergies and the cost efficiencies and profit improvements that you promised the shareholders when you were justifying doing the deal in the first place. Paul uh, let me ask you this how does the M&A landscape looks like um in the context of the current environment, we've got a pandemic going on and the economy is all over the place. If you look in different countries, what does it look like? Do you see more activity in the M&A landscape? Yeah, well, it's, there's a lot going on. You know, There's been a lot of huge deals going on and ones that might surprise you as well, you know. So there's uh, M&A is definitely back in fashion. And I think the... Uh, that activity is going to increase because of the COVID-induced recession. That's going to force people to look at selling their companies. It's going to that and that those forced sell-offs, if you like, or the, the companies which are are under stress and are looking for a buyer. Then that's going to be an opportunity for people, for companies looking to buy other companies and have the cash to do so. So, uh, yeah, I think we're going to see more activity in in the next year or so. Uh, I believe we will see, as you said, uh, a lot of uh, M&A activity in the next 24 months or so. How do you forecast the general success rate of these deals 
within the context of, of um, what's going on around us? Well, uh, I would expect the companies who are preparing and planning for difficulties and uh, planning well in advance to overcome them, those companies will succeed. But unfortunately, those companies will be in the minority. What should people look out for in terms of extrinsic threats to these deals to, to avoid? To avoid, I'd say the things you should prepare for is, is the top three things is develop a plan which anticipates the difficulties of company mergers and will overcome those difficulties and deliver future value. And that plan should be developed before the contract is signed, well in advance, um, so that you develop that plan as part of the acquisition due diligence. Don't wait for the deal to be done. And then the other thing you should do is engage the services of an expert like me, who's been through the process many times before and can guide your team to deliver success. And Paul, uh, what advice do you have for buyers and sellers who are preparing for transactions? What are the top three things they should be ready for? Yeah, well, develop the plan and uh, develop the plan as part of the acquisition due diligence and engage somebody who knows how to do it properly, like myself. That would be my top three things. Uh, as we reach the end of the interview, I would like you to let the listeners know about how they can reach you in order to seek further direct advice and potential counsel on these matters. Well, I uh, suppose the easiest way to reach me is on LinkedIn. Uh, Paul Doherty, Strategy Management Consultants. You'll find me on LinkedIn or they can, they can contact me via my company website, strategymanagementconsultants.co.uk. Thank you so much for your information and insights, Paul. They were very valuable, and I'm sure people listening to us found them as much valuable. I'm hoping we can dig deeper into these subjects in future episodes and, and cover some opportunities and challenges that affect the language industry directly or indirectly. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, likewise, and I'll be happy to, to join you uh, on a future call. So thank you very much. As usual, I am here with the product review segment of this week. I will pick three products that need to be reviewed that have relevance in the context of our conversation today. The first category of products I'm reviewing today is virtual data rooms or VDRs. They are designed to securely store confidential information that is collected and shared during the due diligence process and the M&A work. For example, investment banks can use VDRs to share critical information between buyers, sellers, and other third party while being able to control the permissions of who can access them. Most VDRs adhere to very strict security standards defined by FINRA and SEC. Examples of VDRs are DealRoom, FirmRoom, Merrill DataSite 1, Intralinks, and Serata, DevonSoft, Box, SecureDocs, FirmX, and others. I give this category of software a 9 out of 10 rating.
The second category of products relevant for mergers and acquisitions is due diligence management. While VDRs are great for document storage and access, due diligence management is a more modern process compared to VDRs and Excel. When used correctly, due diligence management can speed up the process of due diligence by 40%. Examples of due diligence management software include Central and Dealroom. I would give a 10 out of 10 to this category of M&A tools. The third category of products I'm reviewing today is post-merger integration management tools, also known as post-close integration management software. These tools are supposed to work alongside the due diligence process. They are typically used in combination with the due diligence management platform. The idea is for the information to be available to everyone after the deal is closed so that future planning can be carried out. By marking some items as post-merger, they can be visible to colleagues who carry out post-merger activities. Examples include Entrolinks, Dealroom, and Medaxo. I give this category a 10 out of 10 as well, given how easy it makes things for post-deal activities. There you have it. That was an amazing conversation with Paul Doherty. I hope you enjoyed it and took away some ideas that you could apply to your own business. I hope we can have Paul in future episodes talk in more depth about the issues and challenges within the M&A space. We have reached the end of this show, but please subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite platform and give us a 5-star rating. That means a lot. Feel free to send me any comments or feedback and I appreciate your ongoing interest and support of this podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.